the minute you think you know everything there is to know about a particular topic or a skill, then you're done growing. There's no question about that, especially with writing. Writing is hard. It's supposed to be hard. Jerry Seinfeld had a really funny observation when they were asking him about writing that I, I put in the book because I heard it while I was uh, writing my new book. And someone asked him, is it hard to write a joke? And he goes, are you kidding? When you're staring at a blank sheet of paper, writing is like pushing a wheelbarrow full of bricks uphill in the mud. It's supposed to be hard. So you're never really done improving as a writer or as a presenter or as a public speaker. Helping you create loyal customers and loyal employees all through the power of simplicity. This is the Simple Brand Podcast, now heard around the world, including West Bromwich, Sandwell, England. I'm your host, Matt Lyles, and this week I'm talking with Carmine Gallo. Carmine's a keynote speaker, a Harvard instructor, and a CEO communication coach who's known for transforming leaders into powerful storytellers and communicators. And Carmine's the best-selling author of 10 communication-related books, including Talk Like Ted, The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs, and The Storyteller's Secret. Carmine's here today to talk about his latest book, The Bezos Blueprint, Communication Secrets of the World's Greatest Salesman. The book was just released this week. Now, I'm doing something a little different with this interview. I'm actually releasing it as a two-part series of episodes. This interview is jam-packed with so many lessons on improving your communication that I don't want you to get overwhelmed by having to digest it all in one listen. So my hope is that by splitting it up, it makes it a simpler listen for you. In this episode, Carmine and I discuss his lessons around the communication strategies that Jeff Bezos pioneered to elevate the way that Amazonians write, collaborate, innovate, pitch, and present. And if you instill these lessons, you'll be able to exponentially sharpen your communication skills and help fuel astonishing growth in your team. So here it is. Here's my interview with Carmine Gallo. Hi, Carmine. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Matt. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited that you're here. Congratulations on the Bezos Blueprint. This is your 10th book, right? It is. And I think it's my best book. I've spent three plus years researching it and talking to former Amazonians about what they learned from Jeff Bezos. But you know, Matt, it's like anything else. You develop as you grow, you improve. I'm sure all of your podcast listeners have the same mindset as you and I do. We're growth mindset people. So you're constantly learning, constantly growing. I become, I became a better writer because I had to go through going back to writing class thinking about how to write communication and business words that were simple and easy to understand, because that's a big part of not only your podcast, but what Bezos tried to do at Amazon as a writer and as a communicator is simplify complexity. So by going back to communication class, I think, and, and talking to English grammar writers and English professors, I was really able to go back to school and become a better writer. So it's, it's just been a fascinating journey in writing the Bezos Blueprint. And I absolutely appreciate you sharing that 
behind the scenes, because a lot of times we look at authors or people that have been doing what you're doing for a while. I mean, because, well, you know, you've written 10 books, you're a CEO communication coach, you're a Harvard instructor on communications, but you also literally went back to school to learn more about writing. The minute you think you know everything there is to know about a particular topic or a skill, then you're done growing. There's no question about that, especially with writing. Writing is hard. It's supposed to be hard. Jerry Seinfeld had a really funny observation when they were asking him about writing that I I put in the book because I heard it while I was uh, writing my new book. And someone asked him, is it hard to write a joke? And he goes, are you kidding? When you're staring at a blank sheet of paper, writing is like pushing a wheelbarrow full of bricks uphill in the mud. It's supposed to be hard. So you're never really done improving as a writer or as a presenter or as a public speaker. Uh, Everyone I've written about, whether it's Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos or uh, some of the TED speakers who I've written about in another book, each and every one of them grew into their role as leaders and communicators. They became better speakers, better communicators over time. Because writing and communication and public speaking are skills. And like any skills, you can improve over time. But the the minute you think you know everything is the minute you'll stop growing in your field. And I think when that happens, uh, whatever your role is, whatever it is that you do, I think when you stop growing, you tend to get complacent and have just this sense of, well, I mean, like I, I am, I'm currently at as good as I can be. And that's when I think more and more mistakes can happen. And I think that you can actually start to slide from whatever peak you're at at that point. Well, that's why Jeff Bezos was famous for a metaphor that is used throughout Amazon and it's called day one. You may have heard of it. Maybe your listeners have heard of it. He calls it day one. And the day one mindset is simply having that entrepreneurial mind a beginner's mind, if this were day one of our startup, what would we have to do? So as the startup grows and the company grew into you know a million plus people, he always wanted to make sure that they were nimble and flexible and always focusing on that day one mindset. <clears throat> so originally the book, I, I was going to call it day one, but I don't think enough people would have understood what that meant. But I do have a chapter on day one, and the reason why it's important is because effective communicators like Jeff Bezos and others focus on metaphors. They use metaphorical language much more than the average person. So Jeff Bezos had day one. Day one is not a thing, even though now it's a building in Seattle at the uh, Amazon headquarters. It's an actual building called the day one building, but it started as a metaphor. He uses flywheels as metaphor. He calls it the flywheel effect. Once somebody asked him, how small should we keep our teams at Amazon when they're designing products? And he said, well, when Amazon first started, we could feed an entire team on two large pizzas. So why don't we call them two pizza teams? Yeah, Uh, Those are all metaphorical language that allows people to take like mental shortcuts and that are still used today, but they started with Jeff Bezos. So to me, that's an entirely fascinating area of communication where uh, if you use the right analogy or the right metaphor, 
comparing something abstract to something concrete, it makes the concept simpler to understand, more memorable, and repeatable. And it taps into, uh, and I'm, I'm not that well-versed in this, but it taps into that brain science. When you use metaphors, you're able to have your audience more quickly grasp what you're saying because what they're doing is they're taking that piece of information that you're giving them via a metaphor and they're tying it to something that they already have inside their brain. And it makes them able to more quickly grasp and resonate with what you're saying. You're exactly right. Metaphor has a long history in brain science. And, and that's exactly what it is. It acts as a shortcut because we think in metaphor, we process our world in metaphor, we communicate in metaphor. Warren Buffett is probably the king of metaphor. Have you ever heard of um, a company that's surrounded by a moat? like a stock or a company that's surrounded by a moat. I hear that all the time on CNBC. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's a Warren Buffett thing. Uh, he started using that decades ago at one of his shareholder meetings. He said that he looks for investments that are like an economic castle surrounded by a moat, which makes it hard for competitors to enter the industry. Well, now on CNBC, which I usually have in the background, every day I hear an analyst or a stock market expert saying, we like that stock or we like that company. It's surrounded by a moat. It's a really strong moat. It's really hard to enter that industry. Okay, that's Warren Buffett. Uh, so th these are the type of things that you can actually trace back to Buffett or other effective communicators. Um, the other one is Neil deGrasse Tyson. And Neil deGrasse Tyson is always comparing the scale of the universe to something here on planet Earth that we that's more familiar to us. So that's just an effective tool that has been used by communicators throughout history. Take something abstract and connect it or associate it with something familiar. That's essentially what you're doing when you're speaking a metaphor. Yeah, that's it. I have a friend who coaches small business owners around their finances. And one of them was a chiropractor office, and they were talking about the number of clients that will cancel at the last minute, you know, okay. and, and, and just yeah. not show up and said, it's okay because it's only about 15% of my clients. And my friend said to him, okay, 15%, that's almost 20%. That's as if you were just simply closed every Friday. Mm, mm, okay, I love that. Exactly. So like, yeah, it's so like that, that kind of metaphor like helps people really, really understand the real situation, whether it's a problem or a challenge or some new thing that they're trying to grasp. And the neuroscience would say that people are going to remember the closed every Friday better than they'll remember the 15%. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that's absolutely yeah. it. So that's why one of the reasons why I enjoyed writing about Bezos, uh, and because people ask me, you know, why Bezos? He he was a very effective communicator who thought carefully about communication strategies throughout the life cycle of Amazon from the very beginning. In fact, his very first uh, job posting, the the first job listing, he was looking for a coder. 
a you know software coder, which would make sense because he was developing an e-commerce site. But it, he also mentioned top-notch communication skills. So whoever was the scientist or the coder had to have top-notch communication skills because Bezos learned early on, especially when he was talking about Amazon in 1994, that it had to be dead simple. Everything from the way it was designed to how people would interact with the platform to the way it was communicated. Everything had to be simple because while Bezos was pitching the original idea for Amazon in 94, the very first question he would receive was, what's the internet? <laughs> well, if what's the internet is your first question, now you have to convince people that it's a better platform to sell a lot of products like books. Oh, and you can trust it with putting in your credit card information. That's a communication challenge. And I've got to think, 1994, hiring a coder, a coder that is also well-versed, a coder that is strong in their communication skills. I would think that a lot of coders would say, well, I don't need to focus on communications because I focus on coding. And many Amazonians in the past said, well, why do I need to focus on writing? Amazon is a writing culture. Amazon has classes on writing because the written word is really important for decision-making of all kinds and for communication, especially as more people are remote, whether it's memos or emails or presentations. Most presentations are written first. So the way you write simply, clearly, is so important at Amazon that they offer writing classes about it. And that, too, started with Jeff Bezos. 2004, this is a well-known, well, I don't know how well-known the story is, uh, I think it's well-known among some people or in some circles. But in 2004, Jeff Bezos banned PowerPoint. Right. And he banned PowerPoint because he discovered that it was not a great decision-making tool, that anyone can throw bullet points on a slide. But that didn't help the meeting and the executives make smart decisions. So he sent out an email. And he said, beginning in the very next week, which was the next Tuesday's meeting, that in their S-level meeting, what's called a senior leadership meeting, that he wants new pitches, new ideas presented in narrative form. Uh, they call them four-pagers at the time. They've evolved into six-pagers. And he received a lot of feedback, a, a lot of comments saying, well, you mean in, in, in addition to the PowerPoint? No, no PowerPoint. Right. He said, I want full sentences, titles, sentences, paragraphs, uh, sentences with nouns and verbs. In other words, good old-fashioned writing. So he could see the structure, so he could see how all the pieces fit together. And so that became known as the six-pager. Now, there are a lot of startups, Matt, that I talk to who do uh, one-pagers, two-pagers, but they are required to put their idea in writing first, which I think is very smart because the PowerPoint, yeah, I, I've written several books on Steve Jobs and, and presentations. PowerPoint is a perfectly fine tool if you use it to support the narrative, to back the story. 
But it's right. the story that has to come first. And that's best expressed in the written form. And I think too many people will take the approach of just, if I'm starting a presentation or a pitch or an update or report, I start by opening up PowerPoint and saying, okay, like what information do I need to start throwing onto each slide instead of what's the narrative? I like to look at it as a film director would start a movie. Uh, Mm. they, They start with a script. And even after they look at the script, they, they don't pick up a, a film camera. They go to the whiteboard or right. they do what's called a story sketching, storyboarding. They, they draw, they visualize what does this story look like. Then they can start adding all the other assets to it. But it starts with a script and it starts with a storyboard. I've had a few people who I've met along the way, who are great communicators, good speakers, who showed me their storyboards. They're not from Hollywood, but they were doing something very similar. So I think that's another great exercise. Get on a whiteboard, open a Word document, open your iPad and sketch. What does this story look like? What does the journey look like that I'm taking people on? And then you can simply use PowerPoint as a holding tool to have videos or images or animation or a little extra information that complements the story. But if you're using PowerPoint as the storytelling tool from the beginning and just writing everything on each slide, that's not helping you. In fact, it's doing just the opposite. It's not making you look or stand out as an an especially persuasive leader. I would actually venture to say when it comes to filmmaking, even before a script, they would start with a treatment first. You know, what's the overarching idea? What's the big idea in this? And then from the big idea, how do we want to tell that story through the script and through the storyboard? Yeah. Yeah. I like that you brought up the big idea. I I use the big idea um, as one of my communication techniques and something that I wrote about in the book. You always have to start with a big idea first. And this is important for marketers, especially if they're on marketing for social media or their website or any kind of marketing material as well. What's the big idea? Nobody wants to dive into the details first. And there's neuroscience behind this. In fact, there's kind of a funny story. John Medina, who is a molecular biologist at the University of um, Washington, once told me that he was talking to me about the way the brain processes information. And he said, Carmine, when our ancestors ran into a tiger, they did not ask how many teeth does the tiger have? They asked the big question, what is that? Will it eat me? Should I run? So big picture before details. And I've noticed that really good uh, writers, screenplay writers, They have to walk into a pitch meeting with the big picture in mind, not the details. Nobody wants to know what's on page 22 of the script without first learning what is the movie about. Right. So it begins with big picture before details. And the way I apply that to a book like The Bezos Blueprint is I look at Jeff Bezos as someone who keeps everyone aligned on the big picture. 
1997, they began to formulate a mission for Amazon. And Amazon's mission was to be Earth's most customer-centric company. Earth's most customer-centric company. That was the line. That was the big picture. And there were a lot of reasons why that really had to be, because you had to make it simple for the customers we've talked about. But over the years, what Bezos did was turn it into a mantra where everything he said, all of his public interviews, every year when he wrote his shareholder letters, he always went back to, this is day one, always used this is day one. The reason why we are Earth's most customer-centric company is because of XYZ, or here's what we introduced this year to be or to fulfill our mission as Earth's most customer-centric company. He did that from 1997 to his last shareholder letter as CEO in, in 2021. And if you go to the Amazon website today, it's still the mission. The point is, it's the big picture and it's consistent. And that's what I think everyone needs to learn, whether you're a marketer, whether you're running your own business or you're a manager, everything has to get back to the big picture. What is the big picture? Otherwise, people get lost in the details. Right. They'll get lost in the details or sometimes they may make up their own big picture that may not align with your big picture. Oh, that's a good point. You have to keep people aligned on the mission, the vision, the values of the company. Uh, otherwise, you're right. They won't have that direction. Everyone has to kind of keep the same direction. And what's remarkable to me is that even after Jeff Bezos left Amazon as the full-time CEO, uh, now Andy Jassy is the CEO. He used to be running uh, AWS, which is the giant cloud computing division. So Andy Jassy becomes CEO, and in the first, one of the first interviews I saw with him on Bloomberg, he was using the same terminology. He was talking about day one, how Amazon obsesses over customers, how Amazon must be the Earth's most customer-centric company. And when you make a mission like that, and you make it super simple, super simple to repeat, super simple to understand, then it acts as a filter for all decisions and all actions that every single employee can make in their role, whether they're in communications, whether they're coders or whether they're drivers or delivering packages, they can think, okay, this action that I'm going to take, is this customer centric? Yes or no? That's why I titled the first chapter, Simple is the New Superpower. I think it's counterintuitive. I, I don't think people understand that the road to the top is paved with short words, simple words, simple explanations. When we talked about metaphors and analogies, those are just a ways of making things simpler for the brain to process. I have a part of the book. Let me review it real quick just to make sure I have the numbers right. But in, in the book, I talk about how Jeff Bezos' shareholder letters got simpler over time. Right. So he wrote about 24 shareholder letters, which it's a publicly traded company. So the CEO typically writes a letter. But the letters, from what I understand from people who are in the industry, were models of clarity, which is why I really analyzed them. He wrote about 24 shareholder letters starting in 1997. 
if you look at the first letter and you go to the last letter, okay, so let's go from 1997 to about 2020 or 2021, uh, the number of words grew in length because Amazon wasn't just selling books over 20 years. They got into cloud computing and artificial intelligence. So obviously the letters were going to get longer because there was a lot more to cover. However, over those 24 years, the sentence length shrank. So as sentences grew shorter, and instead of writing for a 10th or 11th grade level, he wrote for 8th grade levels. Right. So if you, some people may know this, it's called the Flesh-Kincaid reading level. Writing, good writing, is measured by what's called readability. Grammarly has a software tool that studies this, as well as some other software programs. I use Grammarly. You do, oh, you use Grammarly. So you're familiar with the readability index. That's right. You put the text in, and it'll give you a number. This is readable for a, the average person at the eighth grade level. Well, what's counterintuitive is that eighth grade level writing is the writing that you should strive for if you want to make your communication simple, easy to understand. So here you've got Jeff Bezos writing at an eighth grade level when he's talking about complicated financial topics at Amazon. He's talking about cloud computing. He's writing about artificial intelligence and all of these other highly complex technical matters. And yet he's writing for an eighth grade level. That does not mean you're dumbing down the content. It means you're outsmarting the competition. You're thinking about your audience and your audience doesn't have time to think through long convoluted jargon or long convoluted sentences. It simply means that your words are shorter. You're replacing long words with short words. Your sentence structure is shorter, makes more sense. Maybe more sentences are active versus passive voice. So the boy kicked the ball is active. The ball was kicked by the boy is passive. Well, too many passive sentences and pretty soon your writing is convoluted, a little harder to understand. So that's what Grammarly does. It looks at the number of words you have, but the type of words you have and how they're structured. So structuring your language at an eighth grade level, I think is just a great exercise. It really is. And I've gotten into, well, I'll call them uh, cordial debates. I've gotten into debates with colleagues in the past on the need to simplify language to that eighth grade level. And people were saying, well, you know, our, our audience is a lot smarter than that. We don't need to dumb it down for them. And when you think about the shareholder letters that he was writing, I mean, the the audience was, you know, financial analysts, financial journalists, well-versed, well-educated people that that had more than an eighth grade education level, maybe even a graduate level education. Mm -hmm. But it's not about dumbing it down. It's about allowing them to very quickly grasp the concept. It's using that simple language to help them very quickly get through what you're trying to say. You know, that's really interesting that you've had that observation. So I I think people want to sound smarter. They want to sound smart. That's it. Uh, They they, they want to tell people everything they know. And and I I, I get that. I understand. And you certainly want to use 
the jargon, jargon is not a bad thing. If your audience is used to particular words or acronyms, then by all means, use it. But when you're speaking to anyone outside of your small circle who know your content as much as well as you do, anytime you're speaking to anyone outside, you have to make it easy for them to understand. And that's why Daniel Kahneman, you could use this quote the next time you talk to your friends. Uh, Daniel Kahneman is the Nobel Prize winning psychologist who, behavioral psychologist, who wrote that best selling book called Thinking Fast and Slow. I love that book. Yeah, he's the one that people credit for revealing more about biases, like confirmation bias and all those. So he wins a Nobel Prize. If you read that book again, Matt, there is a section in the book where he talks about simplicity. And he says, if you want to be thought credible and intelligent, do not use a long word when a shorter one will do. That's Daniel Kahneman. Now, if your friends are smarter than Kahneman, <laughs> they can have a debate with him. Of course. Or how about, how about Winston Churchill? He said, short words are best and old words, when short, are best of all. Brilliant. Brilliant. So he's going back to the older words of the English language. And the older words are there for a reason because they've stood that what stood that test of time, right? So older words um, are the ones that were introduced in the English language prior to 1066 which is when the Norman invasion happened. So the words used prior to 1066 in the English language were the very short words, short to the point. It was only after 1066 that the Romance languages got introduced and the Latin-based words. So if you look at legal language like legalese, which most people are very frustrated by and can hardly get through a contract, those are mostly Latin words. But when people want to make a point that is instantly memorable and easy to understand, what do they do? They intuitively go back to short words. So if you and I were to leave the house, Matt, and I said, uh, turn off the lights, Matt, when you leave. Turn off the lights when you leave. Well, if you think about all those words, they're, I think they're all one-syllable words, and they are older words. Uh, turn off the lights when you leave the house. Yeah. All like one syllable words. I do not say, Matt, upon departing the premises, reduce the illumination throughout the abode. You know, I don't do that. And I don't do that because it's, uh, well, it sounds ridiculous, but I'm replacing those words with intuitively. They're just shorter. They're easier for you to grasp. They're easier to say. If you look at some of the most famous sayings by, uh, by Bezos, but I, I really like going back to Warren Buffett because he's got a lot of famous financial sayings oh, that yeah. people have heard all the time. I did this analysis in the book. All of them are using the short words. Be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. Yeah. That's his investment advice. So when the stock market is down, you may want to start looking at stocks that are cheap. And when everyone's in the stock market, you may want to avoid it because that means too many people are getting greedy. It might be overvalued. Well, even that explanation was too complicated. And there are books on this subject. 
So he just simply went to be greedy when people are fearful and fearful when people are greedy. Well, I looked up greed and fear. Greed and fear are old English words. They are not Latin-based words. So it's interesting to me that, and again, I don't know if people are doing this intuitively or not, or intentionally or not, but intuitively, we do tend to go back to those short words. Then what happens? We overthink it. Oh, well, now I've got to give a PowerPoint, and I want to show people how, how intelligent and impressive I am. And so I'm going to try to use the hardest words I can. I don't think that's getting you ahead in the organization. I, I think the ability to take complex information and make it simple to understand is a superpower. It's going to set you apart. It absolutely is. And if you go back to Bezos and the overall mission of being customer-centric, yeah. if you think of giving a PowerPoint presentation and trying to show people how smart you are, then you're taking a me-centric approach to that hmm. presentation instead of, yeah. a, instead of a customer-centric or an audience-centric approach. So when you take that same mission and say, okay, I'm going to be customer-centric in my communications, right. that means I'm going to make it simple and easy for them to understand so that they feel better about what they're hearing, not about me feeling better about what I'm saying. Hey, Matt, I just turned to page uh, 38 in the, in the new Bezos book, and I have a table that shows the most famous aphorisms that Jeff Bezos spoke. So his sayings that people have repeated over time that are popular on social media or the internet. And if you look at them, all of them are, are very, very short words that speak, that say a lot of information in a short amount of time. <clears throat> one of his most famous is it's always day one. Yes. Always, it's always day one. Very easy to remember, very easy to repeat. Get big fast. That was his, one of his, um, not a cliche, but something he used to say all the time. At Amazon, we want to get big fast. Well, if you put that through Grammarly, it registers a perfect 100-point score. It can't be said any simpler. Get big fast. Uh, you don't choose your passions. Your passions choose you. Again, this quote has a reading score of 100. In other words, it's a nearly perfect sentence. It's just a lot of fun to see. What do people remember? Because they tend to remember short, simple, familiar words too. Not words that are based on that the Latin language, but the words that are, are older and easier to remember. I hope you enjoyed part one of my discussion with Carmine Gallo. So go and learn more from him at CarmineGallo.com. And go ahead and pick up your copy of The Bezos Blueprint. It just released this week. It's going to help you transform your leadership through how you write, how you speak, and how you motivate your people. And if you like what you heard, then tune in next week for part two of my interview with Carmine, where we dive in even deeper into his lessons from The Bezos Blueprint. And if you go ahead and subscribe, then you'll automatically get part two of the interview as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple.